We are back, baby. We are back. That's we right. are back. You are looking live. We get after it. You know, we jabber jaw, we go tit for tat, we have our little differences. Let's get funky like a monkey. And here we go. Hello and welcome to the Moose and Runes podcast. This episode 258 of the pod alongside Matt Rooney. I am Joe Musso. It is a recap pod of sorts. Uh, still plenty to get to, but we'll be looking back on a number of things. The U.S. Open. We'll be looking back on the NBA Finals with the Warriors putting their fourth banner into the rafters over the last eight seasons. We are still in the throes of a Stanley Cup final and they did hand out some awards a night ago. So we'll cover all of that on top of some baseball news as the White Sox draw to even 500. Do not stop now, boys, uh, after a up and down win on Tuesday night. First and foremost, Matt Rooney, how are you? Did uh, Were you working last night? Did you watch that whole thing? Stay up for it all? I was. Yeah, that was. Uh, I was. I was kind of. I was. It was on the main. It was on the big one of the bigger screens in the green room. So I had it on and I was watching with the volume up. But I was sort of going up and down from the desk to the green room uh, doing other highlights. So I would like do a highlight and be like, oh, great. They tied it 5 5. And they're down 6 5. Um, yeah. Like it was I, just kind of. The extra innings rule, I, I get it. It's in order to try and save like no, it's save the best pitching arms, but I hate it so it's much. Best, at least, at least let us thing. get to like we would at least let us play be, like we would still be sitting here watching that game if that were not the let league. us let us play like two normal innings of baseball before games, no. because what ends up happening is pretty much the guy comes in ninety percent of the time anyways. No, two two normal innings of baseball is is an hour. Two more normal innings of baseball is forty minutes. Don't I, I don't it, nobody needs that. It's regular season baseball. Expedite the process. Lead off double. Let's play. I think I, it's the, I, I think it's fair. the best thing. I think it's the best thing that's happened to the game. And you're you are talking to someone who is kept at work by West Coast baseball, and West sure. Coast baseball goes to one thirty in the morning as is, and you <laughs> want to tack another forty minutes onto that. Put put the runner halfway between third and home, if, if for all I care. Um, no, and I, I and just from a viewer standpoint, like I think that it's. I don't think that the rule. Um, I don't think that the rule changes the way the game is played all that drastically. I think that the rule speeds things up. I think I think it's a very rare occurrence where baseball implemented a rule that does what it's supposed to. I think my biggest knock on it, and I, I, I all all of what you say is merited, and quite honestly, what it comes down to, not only speeding the game, is is trying to save bullpen arms, which I'm sure managers love, and I think managers would keep this uh, would keep this rule every time. The one thing I don't love is that it kind of gives the away team, in my opinion, a more of an, a kind of a distinct advantage because you pretty much get to start extra innings with a, with a head start six to five lead. Not a, not a, not a massive advantage because, you know, the home team obviously comes up with the same situation, but it makes that home at bat a little bit no, more pressure. Not really. Or you're, you're chasing a little bit. That's, yeah, that's my biggest is, knock on it. This is you're you're taking the, you're taking the like, weak millennial approach to sports again. Like I'm we a weak millennial. Did, we, you're a weak millennial. You're weak minded. Yep. You're, you're weak. Um, we just did this with the fucking coin toss. Like what, what, whatever happened to defense? Yeah. You lost the coin toss. Go make three stops and get a punt. Like, yeah, there's a runner on second. Go make a few outs. Why is this? Well, that's, why is that's this what like ended this? up winning? The, that's what ended You're, up winning the Sox game. But you can make a few outs and runners still score. You cannot allow a hit and runners still score. Fine, but a ground out to second and a fly ball to right and a fly out to right and it's it's a run in. And you, you could you do your job. And you could get a stop on a three and out, and you could get the ball back, and you could punt it away, and you could lose on a field goal. You could lose with touching the ball. The rule is not. I don't think the rule is affecting as many outcomes as people like to think it is. I just don't. I would, because no, I would, you could, I would agree. Could I don't say, disagree with that. You I do could not say, that. you could say, um, it's, it's an advantage to the away team. Okay. Like a home field advantage is sort of a fallacy last, like last wraps obviously still has a bearing on the outcome mm-hmm. of the game, but on the outcome of the game. But I just don't think that, I think I don't think that what it's taking away is costing baseball all that much. I think it's additive. I don't think it's reductive. I, I, I 
would agree with the fact that I don't think it's costing baseball that much. I think it's minor. And I think when the games actually start to, obviously every game matters, all that's all, all that, but like once the games actually start to matter in the playoffs, it, it's nice that they do. This rule goes away. Um, are they keeping this rule going forward? Or is this the last year of it? I don't remember what the, I can't keep track of nothing. Yeah. The, the, so the, um, I swear to God, there's different rule changes and then there's, yeah. well, this is changing in 2023. I always forget what's going on, but I think this one is here to stay. Um, nonetheless, White Sox go for a sweep today. And I'm sure your Yankee fan coworkers would love it if the Sox could sweep the Blue Jays. Not that the Blue Jays are all that close to them right now, but anytime yep. a division rival rival gets swept. Um, you got a lot of Yankees fans in the office. A nice Yankee Met fan split. Is it more Yankees? Is it more Mets? What do you got? I'd say it's about 60, 40 um, Yankees to Mets in the newsroom. And I think it's a little bit closer to like 70, 30 in real life. It's, I think okay. I've said it before on the pod. It's got a, out here has a very, a very Cub Sox feel. That was going to be my next question. How does is, is a very similar breakdown to here? Yeah. It's sort of like the, um, let me be careful here, but it's like the, uh, pompous was the first word that came to mind when I, when I was thinking of kind of that cub Yankee, but it's not pompous. It's sort of like more historic, more revered, uh, Mm -hmm. larger fan base, as opposed to uh, a little bit more of a niche, just crazy rabid fan base of the little brother. Um, It's very very much that. That yeah, no, it's very Sox. much that here. Um, you know, Yankee Stadium, not that you're like walking around the Bronx. I mean, there's some bars around in the Bronx, but like mm-hmm. you're you're on the main island there. You're on Manhattan where um, you're not on Manhattan. You're in the Bronx, but you're you're not far from the show. Whereas uh, Mets, the Mets Stadium's a little bit more tucked there. Um, White Sox Stadium being a little bit off the beat, but there's just a lot of parallels between the two. Um, but all three of those teams minus the Cubs are playing pretty decent baseball right now. I, I wouldn't uh, obviously shift the White Sox into that range of one of the better teams in the AL or NL right now, the way that the Mets and the Yankees are um, as the two New York teams, I believe continue to lead the uh, lead the leagues in wins. If I'm not I believe mistaken, so. um, believe if you like the Sox, I mean, I don't know. I, I think the arrow's pointing up with the Sox right now. Absolutely. I don't know if it's a it's a definite buy price at twenty two to one uh, to win the World Series. Do I think that this team has that in them? I don't know, but I like the way that they're developing. I like the way they're rounding into form. I like the way that um, having spent the first half of the season battling this, that, and the other, it has not broken them. It has not um, it has not taken their focus away from the game for more than a day at a time. Uh, at thirty three and thirty three, and even five hundred three and a half games back. I still, I mean, I don't have the division odds in front of me right now, but if they're plus money to win the division, that's something I jump on immediately, immediately. They're, they're far and beyond the best team in this division. I think Cleveland offensively has been solid. Minnesota still does nothing to impress me. Um, I think that if the Sox can build a little momentum through the summer here, they're the team to beat in the division. And I'd say one of the four best teams in the American league. The White Sox are currently plus 140 to win the AL Central. Same odds me, as the Twins. Me. So I, I'm going to go and bet that after this podcast yeah, that's, because I'm, that's I'm totally with you. I also don't get it. Like Cleveland, this is every year with them and even this year more so because they, they let some guys go and didn't really make any key additions or get much mm-hmm. better on paper. I don't know how they keep like being good, how they keep producing. They're right there. I think they're tied at the top of the central of Minnesota. They just started, I think a four game series. So those guys are going to beat up on each other. Sox need to take advantage of that a little bit. I, I don't get how they keep being this good. I know they're just kind of a pitching factory. I know Terry Francona is somehow still one of the most underrated managers in baseball. And it's probably because he's in Cleveland and it's kind of hard to win there when you have the, you know, the ownership that they have, but he still has them in a, in a position to do so every year. And I'm kind of with you on Minnesota. I just, I think they were the the benefactors of a very easy first half schedule and the Sox played, not that they played good baseball in the first half, because I don't think anybody would tell you they did, but they're starting to play yeah. better baseball now. And they, if you look at their first half schedule, I mean, it's, it's not quite over yet. I think they have the Astros one more time after this, but they've already gone through, you know, the Rays twice, the Yankees twice, the Red Sox twice is their second series against the Blue Jays. They've already played the Astros. They got one more coming up with the Astros. 
the second half of the schedule is going to look uh, a whole lot easier with, uh, I think they're done with the Yankees. Uh, they're done with most of the AL East except the Orioles. Um, they've got a lot of matchups with the Twins and Tigers and they haven't played the A's yet. So it's, it looks like the schedules are going to flip and at the, the, the plus 140 odds with Minnesota's difficult second half coming up and the White Sox schedule lightening up. I think they have the easiest schedule in baseball after this series, I want to say, or at least in the AL coming up. There are they are absolutely the investment of plus one forty. I think that's a no doubter. Yeah, that's what we got to jump on right now. I'm just looking at some numbers here on the uh, Guardians. Pardon me, I almost almost went bad there. Did we? Um, did I say? Did I say Indians? You may have at some point. I'm but, sorry, people. If I offended you, I apologize deeply. Sincerely, podcast. Um, yeah. um, Jose Ramirez has been like MVP level at the plate. He's been I really hate him because he's, he's such a good he's baseball a player. He's, he's a, a perp. He's a pest who's really, really good. And, he's okay. an MVP candidate so, pest. Can we do, before we move on to like actual yeah. things, can we do a, a draft of unathletic athletes? Like oh, a draft wow. of like, you know, like I'll give him an, as an example because he's not. I feel like all these guys not, are baseball players. Yes. Well, that's, we kind of did this at work the other day and there's a couple non-baseball, like um, Phil Kessel is a yeah. perfect hockey example, but retired. So I don't know if you could draft him. He's but, not retired. Is he? Uh, no, he's, he's still in fired. No, I think he's just doing nothing over in Arizona. So it's easy to think he's done, but no, I think he's still there. I want to say American professional hockey player, alternate captain. Yeah. For the Arizona. He's on the board. He'll, he'll, be, on the board. he'll be playing in a um, 5,000 seat stadium in Tempe next year. Jesus, what a mess. Um, Phil Castle's on the board. Uh, it came to mind because Jose Ramirez is kind of like in that he's sort of got like the baby belly and it's like, well, yeah. why are you a world-class athlete? But my new number one, and it dawned on me yesterday, Alejandro Kirk. Is oh my absolute, God. He's a little, he's he's, like a little pumpkin. I don't even know what is, to call He's a little pumpkin. He is, a, he is truly a pumpkin with legs and a mean bat. He's like five foot three tall and wide. It is the funniest thing in the world to watch that man just rake. Like he he's is like he's Yerman Mercedes, but better and can catch and also fun. And like, like squattier looking. Like he's yeah, like squattier looking strong, than Yerman Mercedes. Like, yeah. Yerman Mercedes has some chest to him. Alejandro Kirk is just like, literally, I think the best way to describe it is a pumpkin. Like uh, Yermin Mercedes is a fire hydrant. Uh, Alejandro Kirk is a pumpkin. Like if, if you're <laughs> looking for some, uh, some mental imagery here and you don't have a screen in front of you. Who, who um, else we got on that list? Phil Kessel's on that list. Uh, honestly, the, no, the but you talks, can't really, you can't really pull anyone. We were trying to think of someone from like the NFL. There's just no, not, I feel, I feel like, like it's all, all super maybe, athletes. I think uh, it's all baseball and Phil Kessel. Like, is there an NBA player? I don't really baseball, think so. Phil Kessel. I think that like, I think you get so tall at a certain point, like a, a Boban, like there's just the lack of athleticism yeah. for a different reason. Like he's just more plotting, but like, Kyle Lowry is not the first. Okay. Okay. Kyle Lowry. Kyle Lowry is down with the thickness. He's down with the thickness for sure. Um, I got to throw it not in his prime, but right now, and he's actually pitching really well. Johnny Cueto. Uh, He's in a, he's let himself get a little, little barrel chested and good for him. He shut out the Astros in seven innings. last start out to keep doing what you're doing, but like how, with how he looks, the barrel chestedness and like, his road, his uh, his motion being so weird with like the like kind of the false turnaround and kind yeah. of like changing everything up like that just adds to it. Johnny Cueto's got to be on that list. He's and I think that I think that it's interesting because Johnny Cueto like if you just looked at his like headshot, it's like oh yeah, no professional athlete. And then you zoom out, it's like hey, okay, he's got a little belly, a little chest on him. And mm-hmm. then you continue to zoom out, like those are the legs of a ballerina. What is that? Like he's got like thin legs that like are very just the way he walks is a little bit dainty it's very funny it's very funny um i I guess i guess you can go i guess you go to the pga tour and be like i mean we could go for a while there yeah i mean abe answer in terms of size um david David lingmurth in terms of size uh i mean I, I don't know if we want to invoke his name, but Phil's always been a little bit. I mean, of we can we, we can talk Phil. I have no Pat, problem saying that Pat, Phil. He's Patrick, been a little Patrick Reed a is like side. Patrick Reed is like they pay you money to play a sport. That kind of breaks my brain a little bit. 
I mean, um, I know he's way past his prime, but even when he was in his prime and still seeing him trotted yeah, off the PGA every year, John Daly is just yeah. the fact that that man, yeah. I, know, I know he now rides a golf cart, but the fact that that man is going out and playing competitively and almost made a cut at a major championship this year is just mind boggling to me. You know, you know who I got? I, I Not active, not active, but uh, an NFL name. Let's hear it. <sighs> I, I hesitate to say it because if he put his hands on you, you'd feel the, the athleticism. But Vince Wilfork was always funny. Oh, Vince yeah. Wilfork was always like uh, like a Ted Washington uh, mm-hmm. type situation. Like, come, come on now. You run how yep. many miles daily and you got that pons on you? Like, that's, that's something you, special. You know, kind of look the same way, not to that extent, but in terms of like, how does this guy move the way he does? How is he this strong? How is he like in this good of shape in games is Jason Peters. Jason Peters was like taller, yep. but like he was a bowling ball. Like he wasn't, yep. and that's like, it wasn't to the extent of Will Fork with like the gut, but like he was a rounded bowling ball. And the, like the way he moved, like his feet, like everything was fantastic. Like he was obviously, he's an all, a hall of fame tackle, unbelievable left tackle for years, but he just didn't look it. He just looked like this round bowling ball playing left tackle. I mean, there's a John Rom. There's a rich John Rom, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what are the, the fiery calling him? Uh, I don't know if you listen to the No Laying Up podcast. If you don't, here's a cosign. Um, fantastic golf podcast. The guys have a ton of fun, um, but they're in the weeds with the golf inside jokes and everything that that goes along with it. And they were yeah. they they used to call John Rom the buoy because one, he looks like a buoy from the waist up, and two, yeah, I can see that. Two, he's just like a buoy. You can't sink him. He's always there. Even when he has a bad week, it's like a it's like a twenty fourth finish, and like he's cashing a decent check. He's a buoy. You can't sink him. Um, but this week they started calling him the butcher, uh, partially because of his swing. He's got that kind of lash of a swing, but he also just like looks like an angry butcher that yells at you for ordering the wrong thing, like apron covered in blood. So um, I could the, absolutely the butcher, see him behind the butcher a butcher's the counter in an apron covered <laughs> right? blood. That is it's, not it's, hard. For, that, that is not hard for me to picture it. all and yelling at me too. <laughs> exactly. Um, Throw, well, let's, throwing let's my there, steak Matt, at me. I think we've, uh, I think we've perfectly transitioned here into a little bit of golf talk. That's that how you do your, it. That was your out of shape athlete and baseball wrap up uh, for the pod. But the U S open trophy goes to uh, Matt Fitzpatrick man who spent a semester uh, at Northwestern. Go Cats. Uh, Go Cats. Just a world-class performance on Sunday um, from dropping a bomb at 13 to a two-shot swing at 15 to hitting what should be one of the shots that we remember for a very long time when we think back on U.S. Opens. Now, I don't know if it will be for some reason or another. Like, I don't feel like people are giving him credit for that bunker shot the approach on 18, Mm -hmm. but excuse me, it was unbelievable. The level of difficulty, the penalty for catching an extra groove of sand would be front bunker. And you're just trying to get into that five under playoff at that point. Like it would almost be a Mito Pereira situation um, where you end up with guys at five under and you double the last Fitzpatrick hits just a beautiful over the flag leaves himself 20 feet, 25 feet, knew the two putt would get the job done. Like, or didn't know the two putt would get the job done because uh, Zalatoris had the putt yeah. to, uh, to get there to six. Um, I thought he had that putt. He was. So did I. So oh, did so he. close. And like, it's not, you know, we all make fun of the putting stroke because when he gets inside, it's a little bit, not a little bit, it's a lot of bit iffy. He sort of mm-hmm. has that wiggly stroke and kind of bunts it out of the toe. But, He's made stress putts before, and he made yeah. some big putts this week again. He made the putt to get into the playoff against JT. He had to make a putt on 18 at the PGA and made the putt. Um, I think that, you know, I hesitate to say it's a matter of time because ask Ricky Fowler in 2014 if it's a matter of time. Yeah. He's runner-up in every major. Ask Louis Eustazen if it's a matter of time. Like, he's had X number of runner-ups. Like, you have to strike when the iron's hot. You have to take advantage of those opportunities. Do I think Will Zalatoris has the game and the demeanor to continually put himself there? Yes. So I do think it's a matter of time for Zalatoris. But he now has, in nine major starts, he has three runners-ups. He's he, he he's four strokes away or five strokes away from having three of the four legs of the of the Grand Slam. Mm-hmm. So it's just heartbreak for the kid. But um, I, I don't think this was a case of like, oh, Matt Fitzpatrick was the beneficiary of somebody else playing bad, bad golf. Matt Fitzpatrick played 
aggressive golf on Sunday. He played great golf on Sunday, and he was a rightful winner of that tournament. Now a winner of the U.S. Open and the U.S. Amateur, the 13th guy to do that, but only the second guy to do it at the same course. He joins Jack to do that. Jack doing it at Pebble, uh, Matt Fitzpatrick doing it here at the Country Club. So a lot of history wrapped up in this one as well. I think it was a fantastic week punctuated by a really entertaining Sunday. Yeah, Matt, I think down the stretch, obviously they both played really well. Zell kind of stumbled a little bit, but it just seemed like it was Fitzpatrick's tournament kind of going after, I think you bogeyed the couple holes early to start the back with the E. I think it was 17, they both teed off, and Fitzpatrick kind of, I guess, no, for him, he's a righty. So he pushed it and it looked like he kind of lost it and ended up going so far right that he was in padded down rough and had like a really good look and a really good lie. Zalatoris tugged it just a little bit, I believe it was, and ended up being in like an awful lie in the first cut. So it's not really, it was kind of like Fitzpatrick caught a break there. Then on 18, Fitzpatrick goes in the bunker and you think he's in jail and he's a f- just left enough of that lip where he can get it over and have a clean look at it. Zalatoris obviously hit a bomb and put himself in a good spot, but it just kind of seemed like Fitzpatrick was playing aggressive golf, playing really good golf and got rewarded for it. And that's sometimes what happens in these majors. And I think you also saw with how Scheffler started out going four under through the first six or seven holes. It was it kind of looked like he was going to run away with it. I think you actually saw Rom and Rory, right around him realize they have to start playing aggressive golf. And I think those guys got a little bit punished for it. Nothing that they did. They just kind of realized they had to go out and make birdie and pars weren't going to be good enough to win it two or three under. Um, and I, I think that's why you saw them. Rom fall, fell off quite a bit. Roy didn't quite fall off. He was kind of up and down, but I, what, did, what did he finish at two under? Uh, Roy was two under at two or three. So he didn't play his best Sunday, but he was also, I think, in a spot where yeah, but he, but it's he also, had to be super aggressive. Yes, and he put himself in that spot because yeah. of what was it the Saturday Saturday the, round? Yeah, he had um, the three shots from the the thick stuff greenside or something. Was it? It's just like it's such a disappointment, and it's it's a bigger disappointment for Rory than it is for any of us. But Rory led the field in strokes gained putting this week. In in weeks that he leads the field in strokes gained putting, I think it's happened like fifteen times in his career. He's won eleven times. Like it just that's never what's putting is what's missing. Ball striking, putting himself in position is never what's missing in Rory's game. Maybe he gets a little loose off the tees, but approach he's always the nails and. He didn't have that aspect of his game this week. So it's a huge disappointment to squander this type of putting week by Rory because he rolled in some massive putts. And when you think of the U.S. Open and winning the U.S. Open, sometimes it is like, yeah, I made four 15-footers, not for birdie, but for par. And Rory was doing that, but he just just couldn't get himself into that – into that position where he was ever really a factor on Sunday. Um, You mentioned Scotty continues to be absolutely outstanding uh, already the most profitable season uh, by a PGA tour player in the history of the game. Uh, I believe he's cleared about $13 million and we still got a major and the FedEx cup playoffs to play. So uh, good on you, Scotty Scheffler who continues to just Jackson Pollock his way across these leaderboards. And I think, uh, I think he's going to be in the mix again at St. Andrews. I, I got an yeah. early pick at St. Andrews and it's uh, Scotty Scheffler. No, it's a oh. I think, I think oh. a decky, uh, I think Hideki. What a round! Really, what a fourth round for him. Yeah, like it was round of the week, sixty-five. Um, hit some amazing shots, and I think, uh, I think that the his ability to hit fairway iron, or excuse, excuse me, fairway medals off the tee from the fairway shape mm-hmm. shots. I think that he'll. I think that he won't be daunted by the wind or by. Uh, by some of the uh, ground game that you have to play at St. Andrews. Not to get too far ahead of ourselves here. We do still have some U.S. Open and some PGA Tour news to button up here, Matt. But uh, Matt Fitzpatrick gets it done, wins the major, adds to his legacy, first PGA Tour win as well. So uh, first guy since Graham McDowell in 2010 to get their first PGA Tour win at the U.S. Open. What did you think? I did not realize that was his first tour win. Yep. Um, he's won multiple times on the DP world tour and over in Europe, but first time on the PGA tour here stateside. Um, what did you think of Brookline? Because uh, people were raving about it. Um, I really enjoyed it. Not the most aesthetically pleasing, but I don't think aesthetically pleasing is what your brain goes to when you think U S open. Sometimes no. you do think rough grizzled uh, rock outcroppings as they call them there. I thought it was 
a, the quintessential U.S. Open test. And I think it's, some, it's a place I'd like to see more often, despite its difficulty, despite the uphill approaches that we talked about in the preview. Um, I think it made for great theater. And it was the perfect test where the USGA, you know, they took some flack for watering the greens in the middle of the round on Thursday. But I think they were attempting, or that would have been Friday. I think they were attempting to give the early wave and the late wave the same golf course to post yeah. the score. Then once you post the score, we'll see who makes the cut, and we'll tune this thing up on Saturday. And that's exactly what they did. It was really difficult. Um, and then they brought it back. They didn't bring it back. Mother Nature brought it back on Sunday with some rain overnight, which allowed for some scoring on Sunday. So, like, I thought from a winning number, six under, yeah, that's a little deeper than the USGA probably wants it, but they didn't lose the golf course at any point and it was difficult throughout. I thought it was perfect. Yeah. I, I love that number that right around six, five, four under for a U.S. open, I think is the kind of the perfect deciding score because it makes par a good score. It obviously keeps bogey in play. And when you make birdie, like not that birdie always means something, but when you got guys finishing 13, not the U.S. Open as often, if it's 12, 13, 14 under par, you know, birdie doesn't mean nearly as much. So I like that birdie kind of meant something out of Brookline this week. And, and, we talked about it with Sunday's round with Fitzpatrick, with Rory, with Rom. This was a course that rewarded you. If you were aggressive and you hit your shots, you were rewarded. And if you were aggressive and you didn't hit your shots, you were punished quite severely. There wasn't many bailout options. There wasn't yeah. a, if you're going to go for a green or if you're, if, I think it was, what was the, I think three or four was the par three. It was playing pretty long. And it was kind of like for Rory, I remember it was like, you can try and hit a six iron, but you're going to leave yourself a 20 foot, 30 foot putt short, or you can try and hit a five iron really high, but it's going to be really tough yeah. to land it. Like it, it, it required these very difficult decisions, tough tests. And if you hit and your shots and you executed perfectly, you're going to be in great shape. That's what Matthew Fitzpatrick did. That's what Scotty Scheffler did throughout a lot of the tournament. And if you missed, i.e. Rom, Rory at times on Sunday, Mur Murakawa at times on uh, Saturday, you got punished for it. And I think that um, it was also very interesting, too, because you mentioned the par three, and I think it was number three, uh, either three or four, whatever the, it was. The opening, the first par three of the round. Of, of Correct. The, of, it of the it played anywhere from 225 to, I think, 206 was the shortest that it played all mm -hmm. week, but, like, longer par three. And you weren't asked that question. You were asked different questions all day. Like, you were then asked a question that we don't see very often on the PGA Tour. It's like, can you hit a... 30 foot downhill 115 yard green at number 11, the short par three, which proved to be one of the harder holes of the week. And I mean, you're talking about the best players in the world trying to leave themselves in a decent position to a tiny little green down the hill pitch and putt type thing. And it was yielding bogeys because you get above the hole and good luck. Like it was, I thought it was a really interesting test. I think it was, for being a place that doesn't have uh, an immediate history, let's call it. Yes. It's got the 99 Ryder cup and all the awesome stuff that happened around that. And it's got, uh, it's got Francis. We met and an older history to it. It's not the Oakmont. It's not the Shinnecock. It's not mm -hmm. the pebble. It's not this normal rotation of us open course, but it fits so perfectly that I would not be surprised if the USGA and I know they haven't planned out to, 2060 or 2060. something like that. That's not an exaggeration, but um, no, I think I they saw wanted the list yesterday. If they wanted to slide this into a normal rotation, um, I would not be opposed to that whatsoever. Next year we have LACC, right? Correct. Um, is, which is, which they could tip out to literally 8,000 yards. So let's do it. it. Could be, let's could do be, it. Could be a different could be chaos situation at LACC, LACC next year. Yeah. Take the um, bombers. Matt, you said something interesting there that birdie actually meant something. Uh, birdie is birdie could very well be par this week at the Travelers Championship up in Cromwell, Connecticut. I will have boots on the ground tomorrow, Thursday. Love um, it. Gonna go try and get my finger on the pulse of the PGA Tour because uh, immediately after crowning another major champion, more live golf news, more tour news. Uh, Brooks Kepka, the latest to take the payday. We've been through this. We're not going to offer the same thoughts that we did over and over again to mm -hmm. the way we feel about the situation. Uh, the PGA Tour did react in kind with a new series of tournaments, um, high per series for the top 50 players in the world. I, I forget what they're calling it again, like 
like the championship series or something that'll occur in the fall. And there'll be $20 million purses for 50 guys who earn their way into those tournaments throughout the regular season is my understanding of the situation. And it's a no cut tournament. You're guaranteed a payday and a pretty substantial one at that. Um, I think it's a good thing. I think that, um, Maybe it is a deterrent to live golf, especially once these appearance fees start to slow down and guys aren't getting nine figures every eight tournaments. They're getting an appearance fee plus whatever the um, whatever they're going to earn on course. I just think that it, it has one major flaw. And you're hearing a lot of these live guys say, well, I'm making more money to play less golf. And more money is obviously a huge driving factor, but I think less golf is just as equally as much of a driving factor. It's like, I don't have to commit myself to this game or to this life and I'm getting paid more money. That's a huge allure to these guys. What you're, what you're asking these top 50 players to do now is to be completely dialed in through the fall schedule as well, which used to be the wraparound schedule. And occasionally Mm -hmm. you get a big name to play one of those tournaments. Now you're asking those big names. Hey, remember that trip to St. Barth's? Remember that uh, European getaway? Remember that month you were going to spend at the house in Ireland, Rory? Like, Well, you can still do that. We're not forcing you to come to this tournament, but there's $20 million on the table if you want it. So you're essentially arguing against the case of, hey, these guys need an off season, which is a big thing for these players on tour. It's like in terms of official world golf ranking and points that come along with that, it's like I have to play golf eight months out of the year to remain relevant in the OWGR. And now I don't know what the OWGR situation is for this championship tour, um, if it's going to affect it in any ways or in any way, but you're essentially saying, Hey, it's a 12 month sport. Now we need you guys to be fully committed because we got more money for you. I think that it's, it's a little bit counterintuitive to me. I, I agree with you. I think that's a, a very valid and astute point. I guess what I adding on these tournaments and having like having these purses at the end of the year, how else do you, because uh, like, live obviously guarantees these purses and guarantees everybody is in these tournaments, obviously, and there's no cuts and all that, but like, how do you then incentivize the top players to like, how do you get them into these tournaments without making them play more? Golf? It's simple as like, if you win on tour, if you, if you were, if you, if you win on tour, if you have X amount of top fives, you get yourself in, because I do agree with the fact that like, Hey, live offers you more golf or less golf, more money. We're going to offer you a little bit more money, still less money than them. And you get to play a lot more golf and you don't have an off season. I think that's obviously going to be a deterrent for a lot of these players. Well, some, maybe not some love the game, but obviously they all love the game, but you know what I mean? But I guess, how do you go about getting them, Getting it's, the big names you want less, in there without forcing them to play more golf. It's less about incentivizing um, PGA Tour golf. It's about disincentivizing the Live Tour. You have to, you have to dismantle that tour, and then I, I do think that the PGA Tour, as we've said in the past, needs to heed some of the warning or heed some of the requests by their players. Um, a substantial off season, mm-hmm. higher purses. Uh, Appearance fees, and I'm not talking about live tour appearance fees, but covering costs for a guy with his PGA Tour card who might be 123rd in the world who's losing money to come to the Travelers because he missed the cut. Like that can't, I don't think that that can be happening. Uh, I think that there's things that need to change in the PGA Tour, and this could be the catalyst to that. But just trying to match the live tour with these large purse events. I don't it's think not gonna it's going to work because exactly because of what you just said. Um, it, it simply, it very much will come down to official world golf ranking points and the majors. And those two things are inexorably linked because official world golf rankings is what allows you into these majors. And if you're not accruing points, on the PGA tour or on the live tour, you are plummeting out of the official world golf rankings and will eventually in the near future, not be eligible to play in those majors, whether or not the governing bodies at those majors says you can or not. The, the masters is different because it's an invitational and they can invite me and you to play if they want yeah. to. So they can always would. invite, they can always invite it, whoever they want to play in their tournament. The PGA, the U.S. Open, and the Open Championship all require a certain number of OWGR points. If the OWGR comes out and says, all right, live tour events 
count for points. You're accruing points, which I don't think will be the case because the biggest sticking point that's always been the biggest sticking point with the OWGR 54 hole stroke play events is how you accrue points. Excuse me, 72, 72. Hole stroke play events. 54 hole events do not qualify. And I don't know why they would change that unless the Saudis are in their pocket. But at the same time, the world golf ranking is made up of a board of governors. I believe it's eight governors. And those governors are Jay Monahan, the head of the RNA, the head of the master's tournament, the head of the PGA of America, the head of the USGA. And I forget who the three others are, but like it's all of these people's. So these mm-hmm. two things are completely linked. The majors and the official world, world golf ranking, you could essentially say, are one thing. And I think once we get past this year's tour championship and the landscape, it, so like cards and chips are all sort of on the table and everybody knows what's what, who's who, that ruling is going to determine the future of golf. And I don't think that's, a, I don't think that's hyperbole whatsoever. I, I completely agree with you. And I, like you said, I think we'll have kind of more clearance or we'll, we'll know, have more clarity, I should say, at the, at the end of this golf season. But like, obviously, Jay Monahan doesn't want that. He wants all the best golfers on his tour and doesn't want live golf, uh, you know, to be, to allow you to accrue, you know, official world golf ranking uh, points. But like you said, the board is made up of, you know, the, the head of the RNA, the head of the USGA Masters. Those guys, like, if, we're not done seeing big names go to live. That's just not going to happen. Live's going to be around for a few years and people are going to go there. And the bigger the names go, don't like the guys who run those tournaments, who run those majors want, still want those big names in their tournament because it makes their tournaments more valuable. It makes their tournaments more watchable. It's going to sell more tickets, all of that. So I, I know Jay Monahan's going to be against it, but don't you see the RNA wanting the best possible field for their tournament? Even if those guys are live golf, PGA of America, USGA, the masters, I believe too, like all of those people are going to want their tournaments to have the best possible fields and the best possible fields yeah, do but, include live golfers. But that's, but those guys are not live golfers. If you make this ruling, like maybe a handful of them stay over there. Maybe Dustin truly doesn't care about anything but money. And he never plays a major championship again. If he's not allowed to, maybe that's the case. I don't think that's the case for most of these guys. I think the case for most of these guys is that they say, this is the gold rush. There's never going to be another opportunity like this again. Let me go take this nine figure payday or in some cases less than that. Whatever. Let me go take, fit, yeah. let me go, let me go take this life changing payday and then figure out the rest because worst case scenario, they're not handing out lifetime bans. It's just not happening. No, they, they, they didn't give Phil a lifetime ban. Nobody's getting a lifetime ban. Worst <laughs> case scenario, like worst case scenario is, that this news comes down and I have to go back hat in hand to the PGA tour nine figures richer. That's what all these guys are doing. They're using this as an opportunity that might not come again because of this ruling that might come down. So if the RNA and the PGA of America and the masters and the USGA and Jay Monahan, if they want to bend the knee to these players and say, okay, we'll play where you want and, we'll see you at the majors. Then they lose complete control of everything. If they stand up and they say, no, you don't get any points for that. Go over there and take your money, but watch your official world golf ranking plummet. We'll see you at the majors if you qualify. Then they put the onus on the player to make the decision if the majors actually matter to them. And I think the large majority of them would say, yes, these majors actually matter. And if I can't qualify with them, if I can't accrue enough points here, then I have to come back to the PGA Tour to play, or I have to go to the Asian Tour to play, or the European Tour to play, or someone that will have me while I play on the Live Golf Tour as well, or it's goodbye Live Golf. I think that that's, you have to force the hand of the player. I guess we will find out soon enough, um, I guess, at the end of this golf season. I do want to, because we talked about going back to the, the fall tournament series, whatever they're calling it, it's a championship series. Is that one question for you? Is that after the FedEx Cup? Is this taking is this taking the place of the FedEx Cup? No, I think it's after. I think it's okay. supposed to be in the fall, sort of that like um, the, the like the downtime the, that usually leads up. Yeah, to the, the Ryder season. Cup. I'm trying to think what the date of it is because I've been in the tournament twice. Um, the season starts in Napa at the Safeway, and then like there's a bunch of tournaments that it's like, oh, look who. Um, look who's here this week. Freaking Max Home, Max Homa won this yeah. smaller tournament. Like it's like kind of the we didn't watch it, but look at that result tournament. Well, they're trying well, to. I, if I'm a if I'm like a PGA Tour golfer and I see that they you know 
or, you know, a big name that didn't go that, you know, stayed and, and didn't want to take the big money from live because he believed in the PGA. I tell me I'm wrong. Tell me why I'm wrong. But I, I'm looking at this, like, obviously Phil Mickelson didn't go about it the right way, but some of the things that he said are now all of a sudden kind of like a little bit, not about the Saudis, but about the tour, like, Oh, all of a sudden now you have five $20 million purses ready and you went out and found sponsorships for tournaments. That no, easy. See, like, okay. That, that's the, so that I, I figure there's something I'm missing here, but that's the first thing that popped in my head. It's like, Oh, you just found a hundred million dollars lying around in sponsorship money. You can't do that for a few other, you know, instead of adding five tournaments, you can't find well, more purse money for in season, like, you know, that's been the frustration for the players is that the PGA tour has for the history of the tour kept a cash reserve and it's not, they don't pad the pockets of their board members. They don't, I don't know exactly if any of that money is moving, but last year they had a reserve or excuse me, three years ago, they had a reserve of $133 million through COVID. They bumped the reserve to $300 million. So this money has always been there. The players have always known about this money. And I think that sort of, um, I think that sort of amplifies the frustration. It's like, Hey, there's money laying around, give it to us. So it's not like, Hey, by the way, guys, we made all this money appear. It's like, no, this money's been there and now they're actually using it. So I don't, that, that doesn't justify it. That, that doesn't, yeah. Mate, it's that, still the frustration has to be. That, exactly. Exactly. Um, no, I agree with you there, but, um, but why add five tournaments to our, and make our off season that much shorter in season longer? Why not? increase the purse of the travel. Well, they're doing that. Increase- they're, okay. they're doing that. They're bumping all purses. Last year was the large, or excuse me, last week was the largest purse and winners take at a major um, winner took 3.6. I believe Fitzpatrick took 3.15. 3.15. Looking at right okay. now. I have the score, uh, this um, final scoreboard. 3.15. And I think the total purse is like 27 million. So it's, it's happening. It's just happening at a slower and more reasonable rate than the oil money that's being pumped yeah. into a losing product with live. So, I just don't know. Um, I don't know. I think that time's going to tell us a lot. And um, I, I think we're only looking at this from one side too. And you need to look at it from the player side, not even wanting to entertain that idea of going over to live, but it is life employment compensation. It is all about leverage. And the players now have leverage. They have leverage over the PGA Tour because they have an option to go to live. They have leverage over their sponsors because they can say, hey, let's come back to the table and talk about a long-term agreement here where you make up some of this money because I know you want to keep your logo on me on the PGA Tour where the eyes are. Mm-hmm. Because no, like Brooks Kepka just pulled all the Nike stuff off of his uh, social media because Nike, I'm not sure, wants him over on the live tour covered in Nike golf stuff. Phil lost KPMG. He lost Callaway. He lost all these different relationships because he's taking the immediate payday. Now, if I'm a player, I'm going to, if I'm Rory McIlroy, I'm going to Nike and saying, make me whole over the next decade, pay me this hundred million dollars or whatever it may be over the next five to 10 years. Like I need this money. And it's going to be you paying it to me because I'm going to keep your logo on me on the PGA tour. This is a leverage point for them in more ways than one. So Mm -hmm. I think that there's a lot of things happening, a lot of negotiations happening, whether it be um, TV providers, uh, equipment providers, uh, apparel providers, anybody that sponsors anything on the PGA tour, Rolex, anybody that sponsors anything on the PGA tour is currently figuring out, what the landscape is going to look like next year, five years, 10 years, and where they need to be. And the PGA tour players are the ones that dictate that I'm going to be here. So you need to, too. And there's a, there's a pool of maybe 30 guys that have that sort of negotiating power. And damn it, about 10 of them are playing on the wrong tour right now. So it's, it's a very, very interesting time. I couldn't agree with you more and I'm excited to see kind of how the rest of the season goes and more importantly, how kind of this off season goes and when some, some rulings start to get handed down. Man, um, I know we're running on uh, on a clock here. I, I let's get some thoughts in here on the NBA finals, the Warriors champions. Once again, Boston crumbles down the stretch. Uh, they really not did losing after not losing back-to-back games dating all the way back to, I believe it was February or March. They lost three straight to end the season. Couldn't find themselves in the fourth quarter. Tatum really shrunk to the moment, which is worrisome, not just in this series, but moving forward. Um, What's your big takeaway from the finals? 
Steph is just so good. Um, yeah. I, Boston is a very good team, and I hate – you can never assume that somebody's going to be back, but this was their first trip to the finals. They're young. They probably still have some pieces to move around and probably have to add a little bit more, but, like, they're going to be a very good team that's a factor in that East for a while. It was – it was just nice seeing Steph kind of have that. Obviously his career is not over and he can get another one. He could get two more. It's possible, but kind of having, having that full circle moment for him, you know, like we talked about so many times, he, they they got the first one kind of before they they got the first one with the big three, they added KD and got the two with him and then kind of coming back full circle, him getting his finals MVP. I mean, I hate how often in sports we talk about storybook endings and really it's not the ending. It's not even close to the ending of Steph's career. He's still got, you know, a few good years of very good years of basketball left in him, but kind of cool storybook full circle ending coming there for him. Yeah. It was the last remaining mark on that resume yeah. hall of fame, game changing history, changing resume. And um, he's got it now. It bookends those two super team things. It tells everybody, yeah, we can do it with just the core. Um, and they did it with some youth too. They're a scary team moving forward. They're just going to be better next year. Um, mm-hmm. I, they're odds on favor to win it again. And I think rightfully so, because you saw what Steph Curry is capable of in a championship moment might not be anyone better on the face of the earth. Now, uh, people are going to knock him for his his buzzer beater or lack thereof. Uh, some of the missed shots throughout his career, but like this guy is unbelievable. He puts the game at arm reach when he needs to. Uh, just when you think they're out of it, down to one. Just when you think it's over, um, Boston with all the momentum comes back, rattles off three straight. I could not be any more impressed by Steph. Uh, could not be any more impressed by Draymond and the way he got dragged early on in that series and then comes up massive two threes in the clincher, nearly a triple double in the clincher um, sort of sticking his nose up in the air to anyone who had anything to say about him. So um, Steve Kerr now nine rings, uh, four as a coach, five as a player. That's not bad. uh, Only I think three guys have any more of them as player coach exec. Um, And it's uh He's literally been the through line to some of the greatest dynasties of all time. The Bulls, the final three, the Spurs, he was with them for two, and now the Warriors. And uh, there's something to be said for that. And uh, keeping that group together, keeping that group focused. Um, it's the dubs again. It's a golden summer in the NBA and could be could be the case for the foreseeable future, Matt. But uh, let's shift into the ice here as well. Um, because we do have uh, we do have an active uh, NHL final where uh, Tampa Bay look we have a series now. We have a series. Tampa Bay looked to be out of it down uh, 0-2, and now it's a uh, two-one series, correct? Two-one. Two-one. Yeah, game game four is tonight. Game four tonight. Um, Vasilevsky looks strong. They were the team scoring six in game three. Um, give me your snapshot of the series right now. I know it's two one on the scoreboard, but uh, do you feel a bit of an advantage in terms of momentum execution on Tampa side right now? Not necessarily. I think okay. I, I think you saw a desperate Tampa. I, I don't think Tampa was ever really going to get swept in this series. They're too good to they're too good to get swept. They you know too experienced in these situations to get swept. They've been down 0-2 a bunch before, and, and usually, obviously, if the last twelve times they've been in series, they once have come back from it, come back from it in the Eastern Conference Finals. Um, I kind of expected that from them. I, I'm much more intrigued by what we're going to see tonight, and more importantly, how Darcy Kemper responds in net for Colorado. He's been a guy that's kind of, you know, when things are going well, he's playing well, but when things are going bad, he's, you know, sometimes lets things get worse. Um, so yeah. I'm interested to see how he starts tonight. If he, you know, lets the game three performance where he wasn't awful in game three, but he also wasn't good either. Like there were some, some goals you'd probably want back. And I, I, again, it wasn't like a Mike Smith type performance where you, you know, you had a lot of head scratchers, but he also wasn't great. So we'll kind of see how he bounces back. And also if there is a, a hook, because you have a goaltender behind him and, and Francois who's six and oh in this playoffs when Kemper went down, he's been very good as well. So I, that storyline in net, is something definitely worth tracking because that is Colorado's Achilles heel. I also didn't think they really played that poorly um, in game three. I think Tampa just kind of played their perfect game. And when Tampa plays a perfect game, they're still a really, really, really good hockey team. Um, but Colorado's effort tonight, or not even their effort, but just how things go tonight, how, how they kind of respond. Um, I think Tampa did some things defensively that, that kind of, hurt Colorado's breakout, made it really tough on them getting out of the zone, kind of see how they counter in the chess match now tonight. 
Um, going to be really interesting to see. I, I don't really know what's going to happen tonight. I, I think the over or under is it is six, and I think the total is kind of the, the over is kind of the more value play here. I think I love that because Colorado games usually tend to go over either because of their goaltending or because of their scoring. Um, but this has been this is going to continue to be a fantastic series, even though we've had two blowouts. I, I'm very excited about tonight. I think we have a closer game. I don't think it's a seven nothing yeah. or six two game tonight. I think it's closer and I think it's lower scoring to not to be completely contrary to what you're saying, That's fine. but this is the point in the series where things start to tighten up. You also saw the physical aspect of this series rearing its head. And we don't think of either of these teams as like the big bruisers, but uh, you know, you got guys throwing punches, chucking knucks. Um, you, you got, you got two really, really talented teams, two really skill-based teams and starting to drag it down into the muck, which tells me like, all right, um, these guys are all going to try. They're, they're not seeing much of an edge on either end. They're very evenly matched. Where else are we going to find our edge? And sometimes that's when things slow down and that's when things tighten up. But like you said, that's really not the MO of, of, uh, of no, Colorado. Yeah, like even Colorado's tight, even Colorado's tightened up games though, are like they're, they're closer, but you know, you still see three, three, four, three, you know, kind of scores up there. So yeah. while they still might tighten things up, I think Colorado's goaltending is in a spot where Tampa's still going to get their goals. And I think Colorado's still fast enough where they'll, they'll still probably get theirs. I mean, they played, like I said, not great. And Vasilevsky was pretty good. And they still had two goals going into the third where Tampa was up four. They sat in kind of a prevent defense, made it hard for Colorado to score. They're not going to do that. So Colorado's going to get their chances. But uh, this is, like you said, as the series go on, especially when you get in later rounds of the playoffs, things start to tighten up quite a bit. So tonight's, I'm really excited for tonight. I think it's going to be a fantastic hockey game. And what are you saying? A Titan. I thought, you, I thought you sneezed for a second. We I was like, what, what's going on? We legally ask you to lose weight. So maybe just tighten. Just <laughs> tighten. Get on the scale. Look at that number. Subtract that. <laughs> An all timer. An all timer from, uh, what is that? Uh, what's the one where uh, knocked up? Knocked up. That's what it yep, is. Yep, you're right. That's you're right. Yeah. I was I was struggling yeah. to remember that. It's, it's, if you would have if you would have just gotten the reference off the rip, we could have ended this podcast at a Well, I thought you sneezed. But at here first. I am. Here I am quote explaining Matt. So without further ado. Without further ado, he is Matt Rooney. I am Joe Musso. We try our best week in and week out for you here on the Boost and Roots podcast. And as always, we hope you enjoyed. Get into that mailbag. We We're need at the time it. where we need mailbags, guys. We need it. <laughs> Fill we the might, mailbag. We might have- we might have a, an over Stanley Cup finals by the time we uh, by the time we record next week. So we need you guys now, now more than ever. Case. That could be the case. Matt, uh, great talking to you as always, breaking it down here on the Moose News Podcast, episode 258. Keep an eye on Twitter. Send us the mailbags there, and um, I'll let you know if I have any breaking news off the PGA Tour tomorrow from the Travelers. But for now, he is Joe. <laughs> he, is Joe he is Joe. He's Joe. I think, goes, I think that's fourth person. He is Matt Rooney. There you go. I am reportedly Joe Musso, and we thank you for tuning into the Moose and Roots podcast. Matt, say goodbye to the people. Later. May God give you for every storm a rainbow, for every tear a smile, for every care a promise, and a blessing in each trial. I swear I've seen a lot of stuff in my life, but that was awesome. Chicken on the steak was phenomenal.